It's ten times the terror. Hello and welcome to Ten Times the Terror. <laughs> I'm not okay. Hello, uh, this is Paul, and welcome to Ten Times the Terror. And I'm Gwen. And I want to talk today about uh, a major film figure in both in mystery, horror, and suspense. And that is Basil Rathbone, who is probably the most famous person uh, among portrayers of Sherlock Holmes. And we'll talk a little bit about that anyway. But uh, Basil Rathbone is one of my favorite actors. He has three Walk of Fame blocks on Hollywood Boulevard in front of the Roman uh, Chinese Theater. He's recognized for film, for theater, and for radio. So quite an expressive uh, career. I was thinking about this. There's a, a recently a, a film on Turner Classics was shown that I've never seen before. And it's a film in the early 40s. And Rathbone plays a really a mad doctor who's trying to get rid of the people who know his uh, identity. He's taken the identity of a former doctor in Europe, and he's now in Chicago. And his modus operandi is axe murders. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, so he's very villainous in this. Oh, he's probably good in it because he's such a good villain. Yeah. Uh, he really, in the 1930s, was Hollywood's greatest villain. No question. So this uh, would have been right before the peak of his of his career, or uh, it depends on how you define the peak. That's we, we, one reason we want to talk about this. Let right. me just sort of go go through some of the some of the the history of uh, of his career. I was reviewing that, and I have to say, he's uh, was a very devout person of Christian faith. He was a lifelong Episcopalian originally. Grew up in the um, the uh, Anglican Church in England. He was born in 1892, actually in Johannesburg, South Africa. Oh, but, wow. uh, grew up in England, and in his early years became a, a notable stage performer. And the big hit in his early development was the leading female actress of the time, a woman named Catherine Cornell. I was very impressed with him, and she. She played Juliet to his Romeo, oh. and they toured through the United States uh, as well as uh, Great Britain, and that's what got him attention in, in in the U.S. First in theater, and his he said his primary love was theater more so than film or radio. Even though he got those, he got recognized in the Walk of Fame for those. But um, but he and again. Shakespeare was his particular favorite, and his favorite role was Romeo. And he had a very distinctive look, but he was, he was handsome, and, and not in a kind of conventional way. He, somebody said once that he, his, his face was like two, two side faces put together, you know, two, two, prof, two profiles. I think that was what I was saying. Two <laughs> profiles just stamped together, you know. <laughs> he definitely has a distinct profile. Oh, absolutely. So uh, he had several appearances on Broadway in the 1920s and also then uh, appeared in some silent films in England in the silent era and began with some talking films in America. His voice was very sharp, very distinctive. So he was ideal for sound cinema, although his acting skills were such that I'm sure you I've never seen any of his uh, silent films, but I'm sure they're 
They're very good. And they include some classic works like The School for Scandal, which parenthetically was a, a play I was in in, in college. Uh, main difference being that Rathbone was talented and famous and I, w- I wasn't. <laughs> right. but, it, but, you know, it, it, small it, difference. It, it's a yeah, the, the costume thing is, is, is a reality. When you're dressing in an 18, 18th century uh, dress, it does give you a different feel. And Rathbone was very adept at playing into these costume roles. Okay, well, here, here, here we go. 1930, he got the role of a then popular detective named Philo Vance. Now, Philo Vance is pretty much unknown today, but in the 1920s and 30s, he was very popular, and there were all any number of films of his uh, stories, his cases, if you will. William Powell was a very famous uh, Philo Vance. Well, in 1930, Basil Rathbone played Philo Vance, which is interesting because Philo Vance was a, a New Yorker, so Rathbone had to adjust his accent a little bit. But there is a scene in that in that film, which I, I, I've seen years ago, but there is a, a moment in the, in the film where uh, Rathbone is Philo Vance uh, alongside of the district attorney uh, walking into a room and one of the characters looks at them as, as jokingly says, oh, here comes Holmes and Watson. Oh, my gosh, it's so funny. Prefiguring by nine years. Uh, and when you look at this film, you, you have to say, why in heaven's name? Did it take Hollywood nine years to cast him as Sherlock Holmes? Was the film really successful, or was it one of those kind of just no, cranking no, it, it out? Was, it was an MGM film, probably you know not a not one of their biggest films, but it's it's from very major studio. So yeah. and uh, the 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 series was popular. They kept making Philo Vance movies. That Bowser Rathbone only did that one, but uh, oh, basically they would seem to be popular. Well then. Uh, what begins to happen is that Rathbone gets cast in uh, costume roles and uh, classical dramas and shows off his uh, his versatility. But he becomes really typecast initially as a villain. And he is a great villain. Oh, he's so fantastic. all through the 30s, he's, he's in, in major film after major film. He, he's the... Uh, the Sadistic Mr. Bert Murdstone in David Copperfield. He's, He's the so Count steady. de Evermond in A Tale of Two Cities, where he has the great line after his carriage has run over a kid and killed him. His comment is, who knows what harm you may have done to my horses. Wow. <laughs> uh, he's a swashbuckler villain, played the opposite Errol Flynn twice uh, and had duels with him. Uh, played opposite Tyrone Power in The Mark of Zorro. Uh, he was pilot in the last days of Pompeii. Oh. Uh, yeah, it's just, just uh, film after film. He was uh, in a film, Adventures of Marco Polo with uh, Gary Cooper. And he, he definitely was the go-to guy for, for being a villain. Now, he began to resent that. And apparently he had, um, he was under contract to MGM. One point, I'm like, where this was exactly. Uh, in the in the scheme of things, but he's in a film called The Garden of Allah, and he's sort mm-hmm. of the, this, this mysterious uh, Arabian figure. Okay. And uh, but he he was he told David O'Sullivan, I don't want to do any more villains. I've you know I've done all these different kinds of villains, and Rathbone is actually himself was a very good fencer. He that was his favorite sport. He 
made the joke. He said, I could have I could have killed Errol Flynn or Tyrone Power anytime I wanted to. They have the script on their <laughs> well, side. He, you know? he definitely is very good in those fighting scenes. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's terrific. Well, anyway, apparently uh, in the Garden of Allah, they're doing doing a scene here. And uh, Rathbone saw that they were making him more of a, a villainous character. And he was furious. Oh. And he apparently went in and confronted Selznick in his office or wherever and said, you promised me that this would be a character role, not a villain. And now in this scene, you're, you're setting my character up as a villain. You know, and I, I, so in, in a prophetic sense, he said, I, I don't want to be typecast. OK, well, that kind of comes back to haunt him. We'll talk about this in another way here. So he, he's, he's in, in all these different kind of films. Then he, he kind of gravitates, uh, because of being a villain, into horror films. In, uh, by 1936, uh, horror films had pretty much ceased production in Hollywood because there was such a negative reaction to them. And this was the wake of the, of the uh, production code being enforced. Right. So, uh, and especially all the films with Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. And so, they were pretty much not being made anymore, all right? And th those, those actors who were purely doing horror uh, were, um, were out of work. Not Rathbone. Uh, he appears in a version of Romeo and Juliet, uh, in which, which he's nominated for an Academy Award. A couple of years later, like 1938, he plays the King of France in a great character role in If I Were King, about the uh, French poet Francois Villon. Again, gets nominated for an Academy Award. Ironically, he lost both times to Walter Brennan, <laughs> who's sort of a very folksy American kind of character, uh, be that as it may. But so Rathbone in the 30s is, is at the peak of his fame and, and influence. And that's where he, he, can, he can talk back to a David O. Selznick, who already, even before Gone with the Wind, was uh, a huge character. Now, Gone with the Wind, let's get talking about that. We want to talk about how much uh, Rathbone's star was. Uh, apparently, now this is again is conjecture. Apparently, this has been this has been cited that Margaret Mitchell herself, author of Gone with the Wind, wanted him for the part of Rhett Butler. Really? Yes. And again, you know, to understand, you know, when you go back and look at the book Gone with the Wind. Rhett Butler is a more ambiguous character. He's kind of a a nasty character in many ways. Uh-huh. Whereas that, of course, got softened with Clark Gable. And, and again, Gable was perfect. But Gable was not a literal Rhett Butler. And many times that's not the case. That yeah. uh, you're literally portraying somebody. But that's how, how high Rathbone's star was in the late 1930s. Amazing. You know, being nominated for Academy Awards, getting these major parts, playing Shakespeare. And uh, uh, also... Uh, you know, getting recognized, you know, for character roles and, and trying to break it now out of his out of his villainous roles. OK, back about the horror film. And we talked about that. And that that's part of this had history. He, had he already done Son of Frankenstein? No, 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 no. You're getting ahead of me, sweetie. <laughs> oh, sorry, 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 sorry. OK, so horror films ceased production about 1936. It had five year run. 
very popular but very controversial uh, at the time. Unfortunately, because there were, these were great horror films that were being made. Some of the classics, you know, Best Doctor Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, which won Frederick March and Academy Award. Of course, the Frankenstein, Dracula, Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, outstanding films by the, by our standards historically. But at the time, uh, there was protest even from you know church groups and women's auxiliaries and all of this that this was uh, too much. Uh, in, in some of these films, especially the ones with Karloff and Lagosi, which would just go kind of went over the top, but they're still very effective. Okay. The summer of 1938, right? That things are a little better in terms of the Depression. America started coming out of the Depression more. And uh, a studio in downtown Los Angeles, I guess it was, uh, trying to find, you know, something more for revenue, whatever, booked Frankenstein and Dracula, the original, original films, Boris Karloff and Mila Lugosi, respectively, books that for a, a, a summer series. Well, the lines are apparently out the theater, down the block, and around the corner of people who wanted, and this is a reissue now of Frankenstein and Dracula. But with this tremendous response, uh, Universal, who made both those films, look at this and saying, wow, uh, there's obviously a market here. We need to do another, let's, let's try another horror film. Okay, so uh, they come up with a, one of the biggest budgeted horror films of that era, which was Son of Frankenstein. And their first choice for the title role is Peter Lorre. But then Lori kind of drops out and they say, you know, you know who we really should get for this is Basil Rathbone. He's fantastic in this. Yeah. And his character to me is, is very inconsistent. It's not his fault. I think it's poorly written that uh, he, yeah, he brings the monster back to life. But then when the monster goes on a killing spree, he doesn't really come forward and, and say what's going on, especially when, when his, his assistant obviously gets killed by the Anyway, but he, he redeems himself. Point is, this is a film that had the, the major horror film stars uh, of the early 30s in supporting roles. Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, and Lionel Atwill, who mm -hmm. was in a, you know, a Mystery of the Wax Museum and his other films. But the top, top billing went to Basil Rathbone. Okay? The film was a huge success. So in, but in Hollywood then is now, uh, when a film is a success, what do you do? Make another one. Do it over again. <laughs> <laughs> Either do a sequel or you got a the same formula. <laughs> okay, yeah. So here you've got Basil Rathbone as Dr. Frankenstein, Boris Karloff as the monster, uh, top billing. So somebody, and, and you have Rathbone here also with uh, his, his role of having been in, in these adventure films, in costume dramas, you know, with Robin Hood and uh, Captain Blood and so forth. So the next thing they that Universal does, and they try this as a big budget item, given the fact that Son of Frankenstein was so successful, uh, they do a film called Tower of London about the, the notorious Richard the oh. uh, who was who was uh, you know by legend, also by Shakespeare, uh, was this this brutal king who who uh, killed all of his rivals, including including two young children, and his henchman uh, is the person who is the, who's the axe man 
who's the chief executioner for all of his enemies. And who plays that but Boris Karloff. Mm-hmm. Also in the cast is a young Vincent Price. Oh, wow. Okay. So we've got that going. Uh, and uh, now the World War II is, has begun. And there's a, a cutting back on films that can be shown in the, uh, obviously in Europe uh, with all of this. But Rathbone gets cast in another film from, from Paramount. And these are prestige studios, again. Uh, you know, Paramount and MGM, especially. More so than Universal. But he gets cast in a film called, are you ready for this? The Mad Doctor. Oh. <laughs> and as this really uh, uh, a wild, um, it was one wild scene where he pushes a guy off a, off a, a subway platform. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So he's getting this image now. And this is like an extension of the image of him being a villain. Now we're getting into, you know, into the horror films series, which he's not happy with that image. Not happy with that. But, hey, that's that's the big role he's getting right at this point. Okay. So, in fact, there's a Bob Hope movie in this period called Ghost Catchers. And uh, there's there's a scene where there's a thunderstorm going on, lightning and crashing thunder and so forth. And Hope says, wow, Basil Rathbone must be having a party. (laughs) (laughs) So give that in. So all of this is prelude. So, you know, we have Rathbone as a classical actor. We have Rathbone as the chief villain with all kinds of costume parts and and playing Dickens and Shakespeare and all the rest of that, you know, and, and getting nominated for Academy Awards. We have Rathbone also now being seen in the horror film genre, okay? Mm-hmm. So you got all these multiple roles. Now it gets really interesting. It shouldn't be surprising. There's a uh, supposedly a famous lunch uh, in Hollywood, 1938, with Daryl F. Zanuck and leaders at 20th Century Fox looking for new properties. What should we do next? And the suggestion comes up, let's do a Sherlock Holmes film. But mm-hmm. Let's not. But up to that point, I mean, there have been plenty of Sherlock Holmes films and different. And of course, very famous actors. John Barrymore played Holmes in a silent film. But they were always set in the period in which they were filmed, not in the Victorian era in which they take place in the literary sources. All right. So the thought was there. Look, let's do a big budget one and set it in the Victorian period. Horses and carriages and gas lights and all of that kind of thing. and um, so now they decide what we're going to do the most famous and challenging Holmes uh, uh, story, which is The Hound of the Baskervilles. Already been filmed multiple times, uh, but they're looking to do this. You know, and, and Zanuck is a showman. Uh, if you go back, look at the career of all the things that he's he produces. He's uh, really one of the major moguls, one of the major producers in Hollywood history. When the question comes up. In this, in this, apparently, this lunch uh, meeting. Well, who should we get to play Sherlock Holmes? And the answer it comes back. Well, who else but Basil Rathbone? Okay. Of course. Who else? I mean, who else? perfect. Yeah. So uh, Rathbone is signed on to be Holmes. Nigel Bruce is signed on to be Watson. And. So they got, they have some which is which is you know is a quasi horror film because you know the 
the figure of the title is uh, a supernatural hellhound. Now, in the story, right. you know, there's the killer who's got a a, 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 a vicious dog that's going to play the part. But that's the character, and then what's being presented is this supernatural idea. This is still in the era in which horror films uh, you know, have not been produced for several years. Son of Frankenstein has not yet come out when they're having this luncheon discussion. So there's, there's a kind of hedging of the bets on doing the film. And so the, the film is, is, is multifaceted. Uh, it's not as good as it could be. Given the the talent, I think that goes into it, and that that comment's been made by a number of people. It was unavailable for a number of years because of copyright problems, and then was re-released to theaters in the mid 1970s, and again was a big hit all over again. Sparked the whole Sherlock Holmes revival. <clears throat> Oddly enough, the, uh, the the leading character, leading actor in the film, is not Basil Rathbone. He's second film. The leader is a guy named Richard Green, who's an unknown figure now, but was um, a kind of a, a matinee idol figure for 20th Century Fox back in that day. And uh, your grandmother, uh, Gwendolyn, <laughs> told me once yeah. that when she was 14, she had a big crush on him. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, this is my favorite Hound of the Baskervilles. This version, I think, is the best one, which we can debate yeah. another time. Uh, no, I, it, it, this it's one's certainly, fantastic. I would me. say the best Sherlock Holmes movie, because, but having Rathbone in it. So yeah. uh, it, it comes out and in the first film establishes Rathbone as the home. I say we've had plenty of, of really good performers of Holmes you know, in the 70, 80 years since Rathbone uh, stopped making, making the films. Which then went back to more the uh, the, the conventional uh, the theatrical version, where you, you didn't f make the film follow the stories literally. They're all most of them short stories, but you you used kind of themes from them and create basically a, a very melodramatic, you know, kind of setting. So the and and Universal is then in in the uh, the golden age, uh, the silver age of horror, which is inaugurated by Basil Rathbone. They're not dumb. Uh, they see that this this Hound of the Baskervilles was a huge hit, followed almost immediately by uh, what many consider actually also possibly the best Sherlock Holmes from of all time, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, again, oh, wow. set in the Victorian period, with yeah. the great George Succo as Professor Moriarty, Ida Lupino as the threatened heroine, great stuff. So, so out of the gate, just hits, big hits with the Sherlock Holmes choices. Right. So Universal says, oh, uh, you know, forget just, well, yeah, we'll do the monsters. We'll do Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, but we've got to do Sherlock Holmes. And their idea is to make this a quasi kind of a hybrid mystery horror series because mm -hmm. they're resurrecting the horror film. And all of a sudden, you know, the whatever concerns people had, uh, they kind of go by the wayside. And, um, Universal uh, is back in the horror film business with Son of Frankenstein, followed up with The Wolfman, and they're off and running with all of these uh, with these films and bringing back Karloff and Lugosi in different parts and so forth. But the idea there then is that um, they're going to merge the Sherlock Holmes stuff in with some of the horror stuff. And again, purists were kind of upset, but, but those films were very successful. 
Uh, they, they include the Scarlet Claw, which has homes set in Canada, but it's, it's very atmospheric, probably the best one of the Universal films. Also, The Spider Woman uh, and uh, The Pearl of Death, where Holmes encounters the, uh, uh, the Oxton Creeper who breaks people's backs. And uh, you look up the story that's based on the Six Napoleons, and the murderer is described as being almost ape-like in his appearance. Well, it's poor Rondo Hatton, who played the Creeper, uh, suffered from agromegaly, a disease that, that did distort your features, and he, he died somewhat prematurely. But he played that role in several films, but the first one is with, is with Basil Rathbone and Sherlock Holmes. Meanwhile, this is still pre-television, but radio is, the, is, is probably the dominant form of entertainment, even more so than movies, because radio you had in your own home. Well, next thing you know, there's now a, uh, a radio series of Sherlock Holmes starring Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. Okay. Wow, and at the same time as the films were coming out. The same time the films are coming out, right? Oh, I didn't. I've never heard the radio ones. Yeah, no, I've heard, heard that, and and it also shows, you know, the the uh, the one dramatization of Holmes that Conan Doyle himself did. You know, people would complain about, oh, Watson, he he he's made look like a bungling fool, you know, in these movies and stuff. Well, I think that's overstated because he he rescues uh, Holmes any number of times, you know. <laughs> Right. I personally completely disagree with that take. I think that he is the best Watson. I think they have the best chemistry. And I think he's one of the only memorable Watsons of all the different times that they've done the home series. Well, get this. You know, when William Gillette was the first one to do a dramatization of Holmes, and he was, you know, and we've, we now can see his film. It was his he, he did a play uh, at the very end of the 19th century that was a huge hit, both sides of the Atlantic. 1916, he, he filmed the play, of course, it's a silent, but he got a chance to see him. And then he's followed up by John Barrymore uh, and, and a bunch of others. Now, though, you go back and look at those, those early films, which are based more on the play than they were on the stories, because it's a dramatic form. But what happens is... The stories are narrated by Watson. Well, when you're doing a, a stage play or a movie, you don't need a narrator. Exactly. So the character of Watson gets diminished. And uh, when you look at both the Gillette film and the John Barrymore film, uh, Watson is sort of a background figure, really. Yeah. He's you not know? really necessary to, like you said, his role is the narrator in the books. So yeah. when you, so you take don't that need away. the narrator in a, in a, a play or a movie. Then the, uh, but the other thing then, and I'll we'll work up with several points here. Other thing is in The Hound of the Baskervilles, when this is done, it's about Rathbone, it gets second billing. Nigel Bruce, as Watson, gets fourth billing. Fourth. Because Wendy, uh, Wendy Barry, who's the love interest, she's, she gets, she's like the she third billing. She gets the billing. third? Yeah. Okay, that's the last time an actor playing Watson got fourth billing. So in a lot of ways, Nigel Bruce rescues the character from being, in, you know, insignificant or just a uh, a backhanded uh, reference figure that you know, Holmes can work with. Talk and Doyle did one story or one one play. He did uh, the Speckled Band and wrote it as, as a play, 
been adapted. So he's adapting his own his own story. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now he had already seen this. This is about 1910. He's he's seeing what's happening with the character of, of Watson. So what does he do to give Watson some more uh, attention? He gives him comic business. Which makes sense. And like you said, Nigel Bruce, his character, yes, it has the bumbling and the goofy, but he's saving Holmes countless times. You clearly see his medical skills constantly being used, you know, right, as that's a doctor. That's true. Yeah, he, he, you know, he really he is has a doctor, that, yeah. Yeah, he has that sympathetic ear to victims that Holmes doesn't necessarily bring. It just, I disagree with anyone that hates on, on Nigel Bruce's Watson. Yeah, no. Well, get this. The radio series was going on. They decided they're going to do the Speckled Band, which is probably the most famous short story in the Holmes canon, Holmes series. And I've heard that. But when they did the radio play, they said, why, why are we going to do our own version? A version already exists, the one that Doyle himself did. So they they go back and get the script of the, of the play that Doyle had did and use that for the radio play. And it is dead on perfect for both Rathbone and Bruce. I rest my case. Yeah. So that but that's one reason that's how that that uh, totally works out. And um Gillette had made Holmes kind of more of an action figure because, again, it, it, it was for theater. And uh -huh. that kind of gets picked up in the Universal Series with, with Basil Rathbone. He's he's always he's getting he's like Dick Tracy or something, always being uh, tied up or thrown out, you know, uh, buried in a, in a, in a ch chest of, of um, tools, you know, and thrown into the yeah. river, all kinds of stuff. That he has to be rescued from, and and you're right. Watson is the one who's usually rescuing him, you know. Yeah. So uh, he is, and again, he's not a literal Holmes. I think Peter Cushing is actually closer to the Holmes in the book, but he's 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 a dramatic Holmes that comes out of the theatrical versions, not the literary ones. Mm -hmm. so, the, so the first first several films have a World War II setting, and it's like, how could you not? You know, yeah. World War II is going on, and it's not resolved. And, and in fact, uh, Doyle wrote a, a spy story with Sherlock Holmes in World War I, and that gets updated to be the first film in the Universal series, Sherlock Holmes and the Voice of Terror. Which that's is so good. That is, that's probably the best one, in my opinion, of all of the films. Oh, really? Okay. Well, because Evelyn anchors in that film particular, her speech at the bar when she like rallies oh, yeah. the guys and just something about it, it that one like hits me where I just enjoy it the most. Yeah, and uh, it, it, it uh, the film ends with the dialogue from the from the short story, where Holmes says to Watson, "There's an east wind blowing, Watson, and many of us may wither in its blast, but it's God's own wind." And, uh, I, a stronger, cleaner uh, nation will emerge in, uh, from the from the, the conflict, or something. It works to that effect. Yeah. Uh, okay. But so, but you know, people were trying to say, by the time he's doing Sherlock Holmes in Washington, it's like, yeah, are we? Are we, what happened to you know the, the real Sherlock Holmes? You know. Yeah. So they they then went to um, doing some more films based on on the story. <laughs> Excuse me. Based on the stories. Uh, the next one they did was based on the Musgrave Ritual, which is a very famous story 
And they retitled it Sherlock Holmes Faces Death, get a little more melodramatic and stuff. Right. Okay, so these films are not perfect, but they are important and they are very well done and they're incredibly atmospheric. And uh, your cousin, uh, uh, Tim, who's doing film stuff, uh, he really got a, he, he said he thought they were really terrific. I gave him a set of them when I went from. Yeah. Well, especially when you got that set, when you got that set that was re-rasterized, like where yeah. the, the black was real crisp and the, yeah. the the contrast was just fantastic versus the betas and the VHSs where it was all kind of just different shades of grays. It was really dynamic. Right. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and and it's you know the films that have been restored by they were restored by UCLA, uh, and they're yeah they are available they're available on Blu-ray, and you're right they and there's that great scene in in, in the Voice of Terror where uh, there's just this pool of light and everything is total darkness, and you know Holmes and Watson and this other guy are, are in the light, but they can't see anything around them and all that's on a, a hand holding a gun comes yes. out from the darkness. All you see is the hand so, of the gun. You don't see the person yet. You can't <laughs> see anything past the fist. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, it's a all right, so um but now in, in from nineteen thirty nine to forty six, think of this, Rathbone has done two major uh Holmes films set in period. He's done twelve of the Universal series and he's done over two hundred radio plays. You know, our, our radio um, shows. And all his homes. All his homes. Wow. And basically, what he says in his own autobiography is like, he said, I felt like my career was over. You know, oh. I was losing my identity. I, I, you know, so he said, my touring as Shakespeare, my um, uh, two Academy Award nominations, and all this stuff are all kind of like been forgotten. And, and, and and he had he had, he appears in one one period piece in this period time called Frenchman's Creek, but basically his his career uh, is largely over because he nobody can see of him as anything but Sherlock Holmes. That's so sad. Well, and and uh, it, it gets worse. Okay, <laughs> I tell you this. Um, he he said, okay, if I'm if uh, I'm not getting the you know the the films from Hollywood. I'm going back to the theater, which was his first love. So he's on Broadway uh, in this play, The Heiress, which is based on a Henry James story. Uh, he, he, he plays this sort of domineering father. Uh, it is kind of gaslight overtones, you know. But it's, uh, you know, it's theater. And again, he is kind of a malevolent character. Well, he gets nominated for a Tony, okay? He wins the Tony. Best actor, okay? Now, uh, the film being the play rather being so successful, they're going to do a film version of it, and they sign on with people, and they deliberately do not sign on Rathbone. They get another actor to play his part. That makes no sense. He just won the Tony for it. What, like, yeah. why would they do that? I think their attitude was uh, Rathbone is Sherlock Holmes to everybody. Wow. Yeah. Whatever he, whatever you put him in. Uh, and so, you know, and he, what's left for him are, are some horror films, which are um, okay. Uh, some of very dubious quality. 
you know, you've always got this kind of thing, uh, you know, where he's got this Holmes, uh, Holmes piece. So he, he, he has a couple of appearances in some significant films, very few. And basically he's an out of work actor by the time we get into the 1950s. And he's done a, uh, you know, a few minor kind of horror films and stuff like that. But, um, he does do something that, that made a big impression on me. He goes on tour, which is something he, he had done in, in his, especially his theater roles, especially Shakespeare, goes on tour with a, pro, a program called An Evening with Basil Rathbone. And uh, he appeared at, at Montclair State back in the early 60s with, this, with this, this program. And I went to see it. You know, so there I saw him in the flesh. Uh, wow. So great. And was it uh, like a one show? Yeah. An evening with Basil Rathbone, right? He he comes out, he I remember he, he lights a candle and then he just talks, you know, tells okay. about tells about his past and tells about it. And that's part one. And then part two is all Shakespeare. And because uh, it was it getting seems late. like he really had a love for Shakespeare. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. He ends in in some of these poverty wrote or some of these really schlocky movies, you know, uh, the ghost in the invisible bikini. <laughs> no, the 1960s. And, and, and who's oh. his co-star? Does it make it more painful? Oh. Boris Karloff. Oh, it's just so sad. And, oh. and you have the obligatory uh, moment where he, he, he comes walking in and one of the one of the characters says to another one, "Hey, that guy looks just like Sherlock Holmes." No, it's isn't that interesting though. That didn't you say that that was kind of a joke in one of the beginning detective films of his career? Yeah. And yeah. now again at the end of his career, it's like this odd full circle. And and his last film, I never could bring myself to watch. Here's the title: Hillbillies Uh-oh. in a Haunted House. Oh gosh! Oh gosh! Don't tell me he has a hillbilly, the hillbilly accent in it. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, no, I think he's you know, like a bad guy who's trying to haunt the house to keep people out. I don't, I don't know. You know, I just decided as much as I love, uh, and I would call Basarov one of my all-time favorite it, it, actors. It's just, it's just sad to see you know the end like this. Uh, yeah, and and I feel bad that that Holmes like ruined his career when it was such a perfect fit. It was such a perfect role for him, but at the same time, it shouldn't have been the only thing for him. Yeah, you know, he played Scrooge in a radio play and uh, uh, and a TV version. You know, he did little odds and ends, but you know, basically, after Holmes, there's no he's not in any major films. You know, there's no blockbusters, which would have been like David Copperfield or Robin Hood or, you know, these mm-hmm. these enormously big productions, all star cast and so forth. You know, so, you know, he, he did he did do some horror films that were OK, you know, uh, good enough, but he wasn't happy with them. And I think it was he, he, he really he, he was not a work actor, you know, and that's why he did this. Uh, um Kind of just uh, solo stage presentation. He even did it at Montclair High, you know. And, you know, you see people trying to train. Again, this is, um, it would make a, you know, very occasional appearances and things. But, but yeah, it was, 
uh, he never was uh, uh, an actor per se after Sherlock Holmes. He was always Sherlock Holmes. And Very as far as I'm concerned, he's the best Sherlock Holmes in, in the history of, of theater or, or uh, theater TV or film. Uh, I would, I would agree with that. Jeremy Brett, Benedict Cumberbatch. I mean, there's all kinds of really, uh, all kinds of, of, of major actors. Robert uh, Downey Jr. There's really good Holmeses out there, but I definitely would consider him number one. Yeah, yeah, it's right. When when he goes out on the moor with that famous hat, hat and the, and the coat, uh, it yeah. is just it's perfection, you know. And uh, and he's you know shooting the hound. Yeah, right. Yeah. Did you did you ever find out? I forget which one it is, but do you remember where? We always talked about this. There's a scene where he goes to grab the the deer sucker hat yeah. and stuff, and 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 Watson goes, "No, no, Holmes, like you promised." And he's like, "Okay," and he does, and he takes a different code. Did we ever find out what that was? No, I've I asked Tom Weaver, you know, who's like the leading authority on uh, yeah horror mystery films and stuff, and it, it, Tom Weaver in his history of Universal horror films includes all of the Sherlock Holmes films, right? Uh, you know, uh, and I asked him. And um, he said, there, there are some of these questions in film history that nobody has an answer to because, you know, right. nobody's, nobody's, everybody was involved was long since passed away. Right. It yeah, can be it, some, it's, and something so is, minor it, as like an inside joke or something. Yeah. Uh, when, well, when you look at the other, other, other films in the series and you, you, you see that the coat hat, you know, the coat hat thing, you see the hat, it's there. Yeah. He never, he never puts it on. <laughs> yeah. I want I wonder what that all was about. Well, it's like the question of why does um Marilyn Monroe uh, quote so much from The Creature from the Black Lagoon in 7 years. That's age? That's also a good point. I I feel like there was a rabbit hole of of conspiracy theories around that. Too. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's uh, uh again, I guess I, I, I we discussed that with Tom Weaver too. Again, he's the guy who's the and right. he's interviewed yeah, everybody you can get your hands on. And he said, of he course. said, it makes no sense. He said, because the fact is, it couldn't help promote the film because the film had already had its run by the time Seven right. Years came out. They were right. the same year, but, you know, so it's like, and it's not by the same studio. So why, you know. All uh, I can contribute to is some kind of inside jokes happening between, between either writers or cast members or the actors themselves or something. Yeah, something, whatever. To sort of wrap it up, uh, Basil Rathbone is, is a name worth remembering. Had uh, even though he he he's definitely going to always be Sherlock Holmes. He wasn't only Sherlock Holmes, and I think that's kind of. And I I you know, give Turner Classics credit for showing this movie that I've I'd heard about, but I've never seen called Fingers at the Window, where he's playing the guy with the axe murders. You know, right? Wow. Uh, and uh, that fits into the, you know, the horrors uh, uh, trend trajectory of him. But it goes off in all kinds of different directions. And uh, uh, there's just so many great roles he, uh, he played in. Uh, he, was, he was just, he was, a, he, he was really one of Hollywood's greatest actors. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And super talented. He was just a very talented actor. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. It's just you wish that he could have had more vehicles attuned to his talents. Yeah. And because he, he's, you know, he said after all, he, he said, I became bored playing Sherlock Holmes. It was the same thing over and over and over again, you know? Right, right. 
elementary module Watson. And, you know, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, that never comes across, I think, in any of the films. He's he's too much of a professional, you know. Right. To act no, like he's just sort of going through the motions. Yeah. Well, the fact that he's got three uh, three dedications in the Hollywood Walk of Fame does signify uh, some real appreciation for him. It, you know, most people it's impressive to have one. He had three. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. Well, I, I think that that kind of wraps that up, sweetie. What do you think? Yep. Yeah. Well, you're right. Uh, we're we're gonna be Looking forward to hearing some more things. And uh, my my older daughter is going to be giving her thoughts on The Silence of the Lambs is her favorite horror film. So there'll be a lot more to look forward to. And this has been 10 Times the Terror. This is Paul. And I'm Gwen. And it's been great being with you. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to It's 10 Times the Terror. The podcast. One of my favorite films ever. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to 10 Times the Terror. This podcast would not be possible without listeners like you. You can find out more about our podcast by visiting our website, 10timestheterror.com. That's 10xtheterror.com.